going to give some thought this morning to one of the prayers of Scripture. The prayer of Nehemiah is given to us in Nehemiah chapter 1. This is actually one of his more lengthy prayers. We have some pretty short ones, or at least reference to them, given to us throughout the book of Nehemiah. And as we considered last week, one of the things about Nehemiah was that he is a man who is who is spiritually passionate. I mean, there's a bit of spiritual passion about him. And we want to see as a man who is spirit-guided, what liberties, what uh, presuppositions do those who look to the Lord, those who can come to the throne of grace in prayer, what do we come to the throne of grace? What presuppositions do we bring regarding prayer itself? As we think about this morning, spiritual guidance in prayer. Let's read here, Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 4 through 11. Now it came about when I heard these words, again, words regarding the conditions of Jerusalem there. I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech ye, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we've sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you've commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you did command your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, And keep my commandments and do them. Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are thy servants and your people whom you disredeem by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you. May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And make your servant successful today. And grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Sometimes it's difficult when when we speak of our relationship with God to know something of that defining point of where the, the line of delineation is between privilege and presumption. Uh, the fact of the matter is we, we know as the children of God that we are brought many privileges in Christ. There are many things, many benefits that we receive by simply being in Christ and there are ours for the taking, there are ours for the, for the use, there are ours for the grasping, for the seizing. But at the same time, we don't want to go to the extreme of becoming presumptuous of assuming those things that we have no right to assume upon. When I was a school teacher, the principal of the school there, Bo Franklin, is a very close friend. We've, we've maintained contact over the years with Bo and his family. And he used to enjoy telling the story about uh, 
about the man who went to his door one more and more because someone knocked and he opened the door and the man outside the door said, here, I just want to give you $100. There's no strings attached. You don't know me. I don't know you. But I simply want to give you $100. And the man, he's just, well, well, sure, that's great. I accept it. Fine. Thank you very much. I can't believe this. So he was excited about that. Well, the next day, this man came back. He said, here, I have $100 I want to give you again. And so again, he said, well, what for? He said, I just want to give it to you. So he, again, graciously receives this $100 and very thankful for what he's received. And this happens over and over and over for a series of days, series of weeks. Every day this man comes and gives him $100. One morning, the man didn't come. And so this gentleman, he thought about it and he was out in the town and he saw this man that came to his door daily and brought him a hundred dollars and he went up to him and he was just angry and he grabbed him by the neck and he said, give me my hundred dollars. See, there's the man who had moved beyond privilege to presumption. And all of a sudden he thought that he had a right to something which he didn't have a right to, simply that which was given as a gift. I experienced in my own home uh, just in the differences of personalities with our children. And I'll, I'll leave it up to you to discern who does what in this, in, any, in this given case. But we have in our own home, we have a child who is quick to, I tell him, often you assume too much. He becomes very presumptuous and many times will do things without asking, just assuming things are okay. Whereas on the other hand, we have another child in our family who assumes too little and many times will miss privilege because of shyness. You know, and there's a balance there. And again, I'll leave that up to you to figure out who does what in, in my family. Well, spiritually, we have, especially in considering the context of prayer, we do have great privilege. But we do not wish to be presumptuous. Regarding prayer. So how do we how do we find the balance here? Well, <clears throat> I think we find the balance here in something of what I've given just in the title here. The spiritual guidance. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the one who must lead us to discern what's the balance of embracing that those privileges that are given to us because of, of what's given to us in Christ, because of our standing before God in Christ, yet at the same time that we don't become presumptuous regarding those things. Because after all, God is the one who calls us to prayer. No, prayer is not our idea. Prayer is His idea. If it were up to us, we wouldn't pray. I mean, the Scriptures command us to pray. Why do you have to command us to pray? Because we're so foolish and hard-hearted and hard-headed that we don't do it. Except that we're reminded from the Word of God this is our obligation and our duty. So because God is the one who calls us to prayer, we've got to look to the Spirit of God and trust the Spirit of God to lead us into prayer. Well, where is it that the Spirit of God will lead us in this balance between between privilege and presumption? Well, first of all, we see, as we see in the example here of Nehemiah, that the Spirit of God will lead us to the point, to the place of access to God's presence. It leads us, the Spirit of God leads us to this point of access to God's presence. What is Nehemiah's prompt response to the crisis of the day? He goes to God. He looks at the crisis and he's compelled to quickly go to God. Again, very quickly, very 
often we see in our own families, especially those of us who have young children, we see our children growing and experiencing and demonstrating greater degrees of independence. But every now and then, you're reminded of just exactly why you are there. Because they come to you with a crisis. Something that's bigger than they can handle. It may be something that's broken they want fixed. Or it may be a little task that they need help on they can't do. It may be a brother or a sister that's out of control for them. And they need you to get control again. Children very simply go very quickly to, to, dot, to dad and to mom. Because they, rec- they recognize that some of these matters are beyond what they are able to deal with. Well, that was Nehemiah's assessment of the day. As he considered the situation there in Jerusalem, the state of affairs there, the state of the people there, he realized this was something that was far above and beyond him. Anything that he could do and his resources. So what does he do? He goes to God. His recourse given to us in verse 4. It came about that when I heard these words, I sat down, I wept, and I mourned for days. There's the, the initial response of heart there of weeping and mourning. However, it tells us there, he says, that I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Spiritual duties. Spiritual responses. Fasting, that of depriving the body that he might focus himself upon coming, coming to God with his prayers. Praying, just simply time with God, conversation before God. But what does he say? He says, I came and I was fasting and I was praying, as he identifying, before the God of heaven. Before the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah realized that he wasn't coming to an imagined deity. He wasn't coming to a God that he had created in his own mind or had been created in the minds of someone else. He is not coming to an idol that is made of stone that is kept on a shelf. He is coming to the God of heaven. He goes to the invisible God who has revealed Himself to His people. And the God that has revealed Himself to His people has revealed Himself as the God of heaven. The God of earth. The one who reigns supreme. The one who is sovereign Lord over all things in heaven and in earth. That there is none above Him. None greater than He. He alone is God. So so Nehemiah says, I came and I prayed. I fasted and I prayed before the the God of heaven. He speaks in verse 5. Just in his words to the Lord. How does he identify? O Lord God of heaven. Again, this great and awesome. The next phrase, the great and awesome God. He's great. And He is awesome. He gets this expression from actually from the book of Deuteronomy. There in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 21. There God identifies Himself to His people as the great and the awesome God. So Nehemiah is simply reflecting upon how God's revealed Himself. This is what God has said of Himself. The great and the awesome God. And so He's He comes in His prayer and He speaks to God. Lord, You are the great. You are the awesome God. You are the true God of creation. You are the true God of all of history. You are the God who is great in power and and in glory. There's none that is like unto You. Then in verse 10, He says this. He says, speaking of the people of God, "They They are Your servants and Your people whom You didst redeem you have worked on their behalf. You have bought them bought them for yourself. You redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. In other words, God is one who has demonstrated His power. 
And Nehemiah, as he comes and he prays, the, the idea conveyed here is that, Lord, you, as, you are one who have demonstrated your power before on behalf of your people by raising up and casting down whomsoever you would. You raised up your people. You raised up the children of Abraham because they were great in number? No. Because they were more righteous than the nations around them? No. Because God in His sovereignty made a choice to raise up a people of His own. He raised them up and at the same time when He redeemed them out of the nation of Egypt, He put down whom He will. Destroyed Egypt. So when He makes reference here of you redeemed them by your great power and by your strong hand. It took a great God, it took a mighty God, a powerful God to raise up a nation of slaves to revolt against the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. This is God's work. God, you have done this. You've redeemed by your great power and your outstretched hand. This God of greatness. This God of glory. This one to whom he speaks of. He says you are great and you are awesome. This God can be approached. He's approachable. There's the old gospel song that. I remember hearing as a young person, perhaps some of you heard, there's the old song, Where Could I Go But To The Lord? You ever heard that song? Where Could I Go But To The Lord? There was a time when the disciples were following Jesus and Jesus had spoken some hard words and people started turning away from following after. John tells us about it in John's Gospel, chapter 6. And some of those who were following started turning away and Jesus turns to His disciples and He says, Well, are you going to turn away too? And Peter... <laughs> Thank the Lord. Where shall we go? You have the words of life. Where are we going to go? You've got the words of life. There's no place to go. Where shall we go? To the Lord. The Spirit of God leaves us to understand that we have access to the very presence of God as the people of God that we have access as the people of God that no one else on the face of the earth does no one else this isn't presumption this is privilege there should be a bit of awe and wonder in that now there should be something of when we when we take the time to be still whether it be in the mornings when we get up or in the evenings before we retire or whatever during the day when we just have an opportunity to come apart and come before God, there should be something of, of an awe and one of the idea that who in the world am I that I should be able to, to come into the presence of the true and the living God? I can well imagine my fitness to come and to stand before a little idol. But to know that I have access before the throne of God, the throne of the true and the living God who is in heaven. He's approachable. He is approachable for those who are in Christ. Those who plead not their own merits, not their own goodness, not their own rights, plead the merits of Christ. He is approachable. And so Nehemiah, he came and he recognized that he had every right as a child of God and one who was part of the people of God to come before the throne of grace. You know, God's message to us today is this. The door to His throne is open. It's open. We're welcome. We're invited. Again, we are commanded to come. We need to be mindful of His infinite greatness. 
And we need to be reminded of the immeasurable gulf that stands between humanity and the person and the nature of God. But at the same time, the model prayer gives us the picture of Jesus when He says, Our Father. What's He conveying there? That there is intimacy. There is nearness. There is approachability. As a child can come to His Father and be be heard and be received. But at the same time, the model prayer goes on with, who is in heaven. There is the, the nearness and the dearness and the intimacy of our Father, but there is also the distinction of God who is in heaven. There is the otherness of God. That God is not like me. That God is not a great man. That God is one who is other. He is in heaven. I am on earth. He is the Creator. I am a creature. There is distance. Between the nature of God and what I am. And there is transcendence that God is in a sense far above and far removed from all of His creation in His essence. At the same time, we know that He is present here with us. There's a transcendence of God. We need, we need to have before us the sense that Nehemiah brought as he came to the throne of grace. That I'm not just coming to my buddy, I'm coming to the God of heaven. The one who is great. The one who is awesome. The one who has redeemed His people by His outstretched arm. He's a God of power. He is a God that, that we cannot compare anyone to. Nor anything. But we can come. We can come to His throne. God welcomes His people. He welcomes us to come into His presence with our griefs. Our troubles. Our sorrow. In fact, in contrast to what Nehemiah experiences in chapter 2, verse 2, when the king says to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah's response, that I was very much afraid. Why? Because you did not dare go into the presence of the king with sadness of face. He has enough troubles of his own. Don't bring yours. You should count it such a high privilege and honor to be in the throne in the presence of the king that you're always joyful and happy. And so when Nehemiah comes, his countenance has fallen. Why? Because he's been given thought to this. As we see here, this is a few months later. He's been given thought to this for a series of three to four months. And finally, it's so weighed on him as he's, he's so consumed with the issues of what's transpiring in Jerusalem with the people of God, he forgets. He goes to the presence of the king and his countenance has fallen. And the king recognizes it. And he says to him, Why is your face sad? You're not sick. This is sadness of heart. In the presence of the king. How dare you? <laughs> and he said, I was very much afraid. Look at the next verse. He said to the king, Let the king live forever. <laughs> That's what I think of the king. You live forever. <laughs> he recognizes. But, but God is not like that. Oh, we can come to the throne of God and we bring our sorrows. We bring our trials. We bring our hurts, our griefs. God is not one who is indifferent. You know, God is not so high and great and glorious. He is indifferent to the needs or the concerns of His people. And particularly when you have a man such as Nehemiah who's focused upon the glory of God and the issues of God there in Jerusalem. God's not indifferent to that. In fact, God is the one who initiates that within the heart of His people. So we come to His presence with concern for our lost friends. We come into His presence with concern for our families. 
We come into His presence with concern for those that we look at our families or that we look at the, the prodigals or whatever. We come and we bring them and say, Oh Lord, I ask for Your mercy and Your grace, but we have access, we have the privilege of coming to the throne of grace in the time of grief and sorrow. That's where the Spirit of God leads us. He leads us to the point of access into the God's presence. He also leads us in a, to the place of assurance. Assurance of God's promises. Just as Nehemiah grounds his view of God, which we've seen here, he grounds his view of God in the revelation of God's Word. He bases much of his prayer here, much of his prayer that we have recorded here, on the promises of God. Well, first of all, what is the revealed character of God in addition to what we've seen? In verse 5, he says this, I beseech thee now, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Now, that sounds good. Now, where did that come from? Let's look at a couple of places. Look at Exodus chapter 20 first. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 20. I see something of the, the phrasing here, at least reference to, I think he's, he has this, at least the idea here. We're not to worship any other gods. Verse 6, he says, But showing God is one who shows loving kindness to thousands, actually thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. There's the essence of what he said. Then look over in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps, listen carefully, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. You know, where in the world is Nehemiah getting all this, all this verbiage from? He's just quoting the Scripture. So he appeals to the revealed character of God. God, you revealed yourself. You're one who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Thankful for that. God doesn't make empty promises. God doesn't instigate meaningless covenants. He makes a promise. It's not without meaning. He makes a covenant. It's not without significance. It's not without meaning. And so Nehemiah here appeals to the revealed character of God, but he also makes has his appeal based upon the recorded words of God, verses 8 and 9. Look at the last part of verse 8. Let's read all of it here, particularly focusing where he quotes. Verse 8, Remember the word which you did command your servant Moses. What's he doing? He's reminding God. Actually, if anything, he's reminding himself. <laughs> verse 8, Remember the word which you did command your servant Moses, saying... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. What are you doing? Well, it's an abbreviated reference. It's not a direct quote. What he does is he, he gives an abbreviated reference here to Deuteronomy chapter 30, the first five verses. 
And if you turn there, don't do it now, but if you want to do it later, you make reference. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 5, you'll find again, this is just a very short cliff note version of what's given there. So you're given the essence of what God has said. So what's his point here? The day of judgment came. God's covenant was this. If you're unfaithful, he quotes that in the last part of verse 8. His words to Moses was, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. That's part of the covenant of God. That's the downside of it, but it's still part of the covenant of God. God has been faithful to His Word. You've disobeyed. You have been unfaithful. I will scatter you. That's happened. So, the day of judgment came as God promised a condition of His covenant. But Nehemiah's point here is that the day of return has come. There have been a group of people who have returned. Nehemiah is a man who is coming as as one of the people of God, coming to the throne of grace. The day of return has come. There's the confession of sin. Look what he he says there in verses 6 and 7. Last part of verse 6. We've sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servants. Okay, we've promised your blessing. You've made the covenant, your loving kindness. Verse 5, you're the God who preserves covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We haven't done any of that. We haven't loved you. We have not kept your commandments. This confession is part of the return. Lord, we're confessing our sin. So at the day of returning to God has come. And what Nehemiah does is he pleads. He pleads for the fulfilling of the corresponding condition of God's covenant. You disobey, you're unfaithful, I will scatter you. But he also said, here's the rest of your covenant, God. (laughs) Verse 9. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them. Though you've been scattered to their most parts of the heavens, I'm going to gather you from there. I'm going to bring them to the place where? Jerusalem. I'm going to bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. What's he saying? The day of return is now. God, we're back. We've come back. Just as you have kept the downside of your covenant and you've brought your judgment justly so upon us, we were deserving of that. You've brought your just judgment upon us as the people of God. Would you not fulfill this part of your covenant? When you return, I'm going to bring you back together. Though you were scattered to the far, remotest parts of the earth, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to establish you to the, in the place that I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. And then Nehemiah is thinking it's not just that some people come back, that's happened. That there's to be the return of prosperity and the recovery of the glory that was once known in Jerusalem. Where glorious things of thee would once again be spoken. Rather than the reproach as he, and the great distress as he speaks of there in verse 5 that's taken over the city. You know, every now and then I find that my prayer life needs a little bit of a boost. <laughs> 
need a confidence boost. And I think the thing that has helped me the most in my own experience is times that I've when I've not really known how to pray or what to pray or had that sense of, Lord, I just, I'm not fit to come. But to know the character of God as He has revealed Himself in His Word. <coughs> now, we're not guilty many times of imagining God being quite different than He really is. Haven't you? Haven't you ever imagined God be much more severe and ungracious and unforgiving toward you than He really is? I have. You know, I think I've got to do my little acts of penance and win my way back and do let God know I'm really I've I've messed up. Let him know I really mean it. I really mean it. Then I kinda earn my way back. That's not the picture that God gives us of himself. We need to have our our minds filled with the revelation of God as He's revealed Himself in His Word to us. He's the one who's faithful. He is the one who preserves covenant. So, well, what covenant? What have a, yes, you do. You have the greatest of covenants. You have the, the second, the last covenant if you're in Christ. All the benefits of the covenant of God that are given to us in Christ. We rest on those. We claim those. And we need to embrace the promises of His Word. The promises of His faithfulness. The promises of His unchanging love for us. The, the promises of the physical needs that we have. As one who is a provider of every need. The one who is the sovereign Lord of every trial. You know, what are the, what's the area that you're struggling with in your life? What's your battle? And what truth of the revelation of the character of God? Or what promise of His Word do you simply need to go and you lay hold of it? And I mean lay hold of it before the throne of grace. And you cried out, God, you've said. That's what Nehemiah does. God, you have said. Remember what you said through Moses? They, if, if we disobeyed, if we were unfaithful, you would scatter us. You did it. We believe it. We've got that. But you also said that if we came back, if we returned, that you would bring us back. It's not presumption. It's simply taking God at His promise, at His word. God makes no empty promises. God establishes no vain, useless covenants. We have the assurance of God's promise. The Spirit of God leads us there. Finally, the Spirit of God leads us to an appeal for God's provision. A very natural and a very proper conclusion to prayers. Nehemiah, as he prayed this prayer, where we've seen the greatness of God, we've seen this confession of sin, we've seen the the rehearsing to God of, of God's covenant, of His promises, and then he comes down to the very last, verse 10, he's almost, I'm sorry, verse 11, is almost a repeat of what he says in verse 5. It says, I beseech you, It's the word there is not even translated in some of the newer translations, but it's, it's Something of the emotional fervency that he has here. When it says, he says, Ah, now, O oh Lord God, now. And it's repeated again in verse 11. O oh Lord, we have the new NASB translated, I beseech you. It's better translated, Ah, now. It's an interjection. He thrust in something of the emotion has passed through this. I beseech you. May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants. I'm not alone in this. 
the prayer of your servants, but also the prayer of others of your servants who are, who are asking before, before the throne of grace for this very same thing. The servants who delight to revere your name and make your... Here's the prayer. Here's what he says. Make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Nehemiah's thinking it's a very proper, it's a very natural conclusion to prayer. You come to the point in prayer, and again, it's privilege, it's not presumption, that you actually have the right, the privilege of asking for something. Of asking for something. He does ask that God would hear, hear his prayer, that he would not turn a deaf ear, verses 6 and 11, turn a deaf ear of indifference to the prayers of Nehemiah and the prayers of God's people, those who those who have joined with him in this prayer. He asked God that he would grant him grace, verse 11, grant him hearing, grant him favor. He said, grant compassion before this man. You know, the marvel of marvels is that we can come to this God and all of his greatness and all of his glory all of His wonder, all of His all, we can come to this God and we can ask for something. God lets us open our foolish mouths, oftentimes guided by our small minds. You know, you, you would think, if this God is so great, this God is so awesome, this God is so glorious, this God is so high, so lifted up. This God is so perfect in all of His essence. Wouldn't it be appropriate just to simply become before the throne of grace and, and be quiet? Be silent. And hear Him tell us what He's going to do. I mean, isn't there something of a arrogance here that mere men dare to ask God, this God to do something at our request isn't that the height of presumption no it's not presumption it's privilege it's privilege now we need to have something to wonder again struck in our hearts of that don't we that we can ask God to do something for us. That also it reveals to us something of the mystery of prayer. And how the Spirit of God leads. And again, we're talking about spiritual guidance in prayer. That the Spirit of God leads us. The Spirit of God who knows the mind of God, who knows the heart of God. That prayer at its height is the Spirit of God leading us to ask of God what God desires to do. So that there is a... You know, we're not coming asking God to do something He's unwilling to do. We're not asking God to change His mind. We're simply, if anything, having our hearts brought into union with Him and His will. There is the height of prayer. When God has revealed His will to us and we desire the things that He wants to do. The mystery, you know, his Nehemiah's prayer—it's—it's not—it's not presumptive. He's good reason, based upon God's revelation of Himself, based upon God's promises, to expect God to do what He asks. He's asking God to do something. 
Now, the exact specifics of how that's going to take place, we don't know. How are you going to do this, Lord? I don't know. But Nehemiah is saying, here's what I'm willing to ask for. For my part in this, you give me compassion before this man. I want to... He has, he has a place. I want to be able to go to the king and to make a request. I want to know the time. I want to know the way. I want to make sure everything is set up. I'm going to pray. And he has prayed. He prays for months before he actually gets to the point. And then the king takes the initiative when he sees his face, his countenance. He says, God, I'm asking that you would give me compassion. Now, could it be? This is presumptive. Maybe God wants to use someone else. I mean, remember, who is Nehemiah? Who's Nehemiah? He's not of the priestly line. He's not of the Davidic line. Who's he? Nehemiah is just simply saying, God, give me compassion. I have the means. I have the opportunity. Give me compassion in this man's eyes. Nehemiah's prayer is not dictatorial. He's not dictating to God, this is the way you've got to do it. He's a desperate man. He's appealing to God's grace and His kindness. That's what prayer is. Listen. (laughs) Prayer is the expression of desperate people. That's prayer. Why is it we don't pray? Simply because we're not desperate. I mean, we've got we've got angles to work. We've got avenues. We've got we've got ways to work things out. We're not desperate. Here's a desperate man. But again, I don't. We talked about last week that prayer didn't. That the, that the crises didn't make Nehemiah a man of prayer. The crises just revealed to us that he was a man of prayer. Prayer wasn't his last resort. God, I can't do anything else, so I might as well come to you. <laughs> you know what? You can do something here. That's where he goes. His response when he hears the, is this. I sat down, I wept, and I mourned, and I fasted, and I prayed before God. He yields to God's prerogative to answer as he will. As he's sure he knows what's going to happen, he's not real sure. Again, chapter 2. That's when the king pegs him. He's scared. He's scared. You know, my children, my three children, have a special privilege with me. They can ask things of me that no one else can. Your children the same way. With you. Special privilege with you. You know, they can ask things of you that they that no one else can ask. And that's the way it is with God, with His children. Our privilege is great. It's not presumptuous to expect. It's not presumptuous to enjoy these things. God's Spirit leads us to enjoy the spiritual privilege that are ours because we are the children of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is privilege that we have access to His presence. It is privilege that we can rest assured of the promises of God. It is a privilege that we can appeal to God for His provision. Simply ask. Ask Him for things. That's our privilege. And again, that's where the Spirit of God led Nehemiah. That's where the Spirit of God leads us. The throne of God is open. Access is available. He's approachable. His promises are there to give us assurance. He makes no empty promises. And we can ask for those things that we need. 
and he hears us and he welcomes it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that is ours in prayer. We thank you for what you've revealed to us through one man, Nehemiah, and what he teaches us of prayer and knowing that we're not here to exalt a man. We're here to exalt the grace of God in this man. We're here to exalt how the Spirit of God led this man in his prayer. Lord, give us such confidence to enjoy what is ours by privilege. For the blessings that you that you so freely bestow, and that you enjoy doing that, you delight in that. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.